Uh, it doesn't matter if they're on the other side of a screen or they're right in front of you in person. You have to listen to what they say. That doesn't mean you act on everything that they say or all the suggestions that they make, but people naturally want to be heard. And that's, that's enough for them, even if you don't act on what they say, they want that acknowledgement that, hey, you took my feedback, you gave me reasons on things that you liked and things that you don't, but you can't run a community as a dictator. You're listening to Hacker Culture FM, a podcast about the people and movements shaping cybersecurity. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this episode, Ted Kramer stops by to talk about building a cybersecurity community. On platforms like HackerOne and BugCrowd, security experts can find a list of companies that they can hack for good. By finding and reporting security vulnerabilities, they can then get money and recognition from the organizations they help. While bug bounty hunting is often done remote, HackerOne and BugCrowd both host live hacking events where a number of the top hunters are invited to participate in a weekend-long private competition. However, over the course of the weekend, it also becomes a hangout for hackers. Bug bounty hunters who only talk to each other in private forums get to meet for the first time. Security experts at target companies can put a friendly face to who's helping them secure their technology. New friends become old friends, and together they form this community dedicated to learning and sharing information. And the man who's helped build and nurture this atmosphere is Ted Kramer. He was the chief of staff at HackerOne before leaving to become an advisor to BugCrowd. And before entering the security world, he was an early employee at WeWork. For a good part of his career, he spent his time focused on how to effectively create a healthy and thriving culture. On this episode, we talk about his time at both companies, how to build a successful community, and what he's working on now after leaving the security world. Ted Kramer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. So when you and I first met, you were the chief of staff at HackerOne. Um, since then, a lot has changed. So what has that past year been like for you? Uh, it's been a pretty wild year. Uh, I mean, I think we should tell everyone how we did meet, which is, I think is a pretty interesting story. Okay. Do you want to tell it or? Yeah, I think I could. I mean, you can, you can fill in the blanks because I'm sure there's a lot that I've missed. Um, but we met in San Francisco in the spring of 2018 and you were a plus one Right. Uh, to a live hacking event at a live hacking event, H one four one five two thousand and eighteen, and your one of your friends from college, Joel Margolis, whose handle is Techno Geek, uh, brought you along. Yep, shout out to Joel Margolis. Um, big big shout out to Joel. Uh, yeah. Did you make any money that day? Yeah, I did. I uh, I found a couple dupes and I um and I got one bug. So. That that was a historic day. I think almost a million dollars got paid out from that event. Yeah, let's go back to hacker. Let's go back to uh, you at Hacker One. Um, sure. You were the chief of staff. What exactly is the chief of staff's responsibilities? That chief of staff is the greatest title in the world because it means absolutely nothing, uh, and that's what I loved about it. Um, because it, it means anything under the sun uh, for any company. There are, you know, in politics, the chief of staff is literally the right hand uh, man or woman to the president. Um, but in some cases, it can just be a fancy name for an executive assistant. Um, I was kind of in between. When I first joined HackerOne in 2015, uh, I got to pick the fancy title of chief of staff. And they brought me in, I think, because I had a pretty uh, solid track record in terms of working in startups and helping them scale and grow. Uh, but they kind of didn't know what to do with me. 
Uh, and that was a good problem for someone like me. And a perfect example are some of the things that I think we'll talk about today, for example, like swag and events, uh, c- corporate culture and things like that. So when I started out in the summer of 2015 at HackerOne as the chief of staff, I kind of went into land grab mode. I saw all the things that they didn't have uh, and pulled them in under my own personal umbrella and, and developed them and built them and scaled them as much as I could. And starting out, it was as simple as you know, uh, the snack program. And eventually I took on the swag program. And then eventually I was in charge of all of HR. And with my background, um, in, in real estate and co-working and facilities, I took over the entire real estate program around the globe for Hacker One and developed that. Um, over time, what that, you know, as Hacker One grew and scaled and matured, and this happens at every company, not just a company like Hacker One, you have to kind of develop, uh, your own siloed role and become a little bit more definitive in what you do day in, day out. Uh, and for me, that eventually turned into uh, running live hacking events full time uh, and, and doing a lot of uh, kind of residual community work as well. Um, I wish I could say I could take cre- I, I wish I could say I could take credit for uh, their genesis, but um, it's actually not the case. As you can expect, uh, live hacking events were started by hackers, um, and two two in particular who I'm very good friends with. Uh, one is Justin Kalmus, who is the current CISO for One Login, and the other is Franz Rosen, who is a very well respected and well known uh, hacker and software developer from Stockholm. Sweden. Uh, and it actually happened in the summer of 2015 at DEF CON. I wasn't even in Las Vegas then. I actually it was at, um, I was on summer vacation then. But Franz and Justin were sitting uh, in a casino in Vegas uh, and, and having some drinks, as, as people do during DEF CON. They were having drinks downstairs. And they said to each other, and at the time, Justin was the CISO of Zenefits. And Justin said, listen, I have a huge bug bounty budget and it's not really being touched. How about we invite a bunch of hackers up to my suite, order all the food and drink that we want and just hack all night? And I think Justin ended up paying out like over 100K that night to Franz and hackers like Joel, uh, Jobert Abma and Mikhail Prince, who were the co-founders of Hacker One, and a bunch of other people who showed up that night. Um, and... Uh, when when Yobert and Mikhail and a few others, um, uh, Lauren Kazarak, who, who works in communications uh, for HackerOne, big shout out to Lauren. She's a good friend of mine. Uh, they came back from Las Vegas from that from DEF CON in 2016. And they said, oh, sorry, 2015. And they said, oh, my goodness, we have got something to work on here. Uh, and in the spring of 2016, I was fortunately uh, I was fortunate enough to be given the reins to do the first ever live hacking event for Hacker One, uh, and we launched in in DefCon of 2016. And boy, did we make a ton of mistakes. We learned a lot. It was super successful. Um, but man, it we it was such a great learning experience doing that first one in August of 2016. And we knew there was something there. There was a foundation to be built upon and something that could scale and not only, uh, you know, be a positive influence in the world of cybersecurity, but it can change people's lives uh, no matter where they are, where they're from or what their background is. Yeah, I mean, there was just that uh, BBC News report about the uh, the 19-year-old who's made like a million dollars or the first yeah, to make a million dollars. Santiago Lopez, uh, who... Um, is based in Buenos Aires. Yeah. Uh, and Santiago is amazing. And he, you know, he's bought two cars for his family and, uh, he, he's made a life for himself. Even, uh, in, um, 
the summer of 2017, uh, CBS News did a story on Sandeep Singh, uh, who goes by Geek Boy, uh, and, and essentially his journey as a hacker. Uh, and, you know, his story is absolutely amazing. He lives in, you know, one of the most populated cities in the world, uh, which is Mumbai. Uh, and, and he said, you know, this has changed my life uh, only for the better. Uh, and, and those stories are not few and far between. They're happening every single day around the world to every kind of person, no matter who they are, or where they're from. Right. So let's talk about the live hacking event. Um, from my understanding of it, a live hacking event is where a company like HackerOne will invite uh, 30, 40, 50 or so hackers, and they'll bring them in. Um, there's a private target where it's a deal that's that that is negotiated between like hacker one or in, in another company and these guys will just get in a room together and they'll just try their best to break in the way i describe a live hacking event it's an in-person event that brings right. some of the world's most talented hackers with some of the world's leading companies uh, and just for an example in terms of what kind of companies have done live hacking events uh they include the u.s department of defense uh, and under that umbrella, the U.S. Marine Corps did one last summer. Uh, the U.S. Air Force has done a live hacking event. Uh, and when it comes to technology companies, uh, you know, companies like Airbnb, Dropbox, Uber, Salesforce, GitHub, um, I mean, and, and the list goes on. So these are very, very mature uh, companies um, that obviously are looking for more than just bugs, because that to me is what the power of a live event is. It's about engagement. It's about bringing some of the most talented hackers from around the world, but also some of the most talented up and comers and connecting them with these uh, companies so that it isn't just a relationship that lasts for that one day, but to kind of be a little cheesy and, and cliche, it's a relationship that lasts a lifetime, right? I, I think the power of meeting a, a security researcher, hacker, uh, ethical hacker, whatever you want to call them, meeting them in person, talking about their vulnerabilities talking about even things outside of cybersecurity, who they are and where they come from, those kind of relationships that you can build in person uh, and from the ground up, uh, they, that's the kind of thing that can, that can really change um, kind of this existential challenge that exists in the bug bounty world, right? You've got hackers with their desires, right? They want companies that respond quickly, that pay well, that don't push back too much. And you have the companies which want obviously high signal reports from respectful hackers who, you know, don't give them a lot of guff when, and push back when it comes to how they, you know, determine the status of that report and what they get paid out on. So by bringing them together in person, we kind of are doing, uh, you know, you know, building a relationship that kind of closes that existential gap that exists naturally in the world of bug bounty and pen testing. Um, and the and the beauty of it also, I forgot, is that it's a so, it's such a social event, right? There's food and drinks that go around. There's obviously the swag. There's the award ceremony. So it's a competition, but it's also an environment where people are learning from one another. And I'm sure we'll talk about it shortly. But the thing that I've always loved about the live hacking events has been the collaboration, watching hackers work together, watching hackers and companies work together, watching partners getting to watch that relationship grow. Uh, it's, you know, Again, I'll, I'm going to use a lot of cliche statements in our conversation, but it, it's really, it's, it's magic, right? It's really magic. It's the magic of bug bounty in person and kind of uh, refuting all of the stereotypes that exist. Because the thing that's so great about live events is that the results are real, right? The signal is like historically over 85%. So there isn't a lot of noise. The severity is insane. You're seeing criticals and highs getting dropped all day and the payouts are real. I mean, that's the thing. Like even just last month, um, an amazing hacker named Andre Batista, who's from Portugal, he made 50K on a bug. I think he walked out of San Francisco with almost $75,000. And, and for me, that's going to change his life 
for the better. And the company that he helped find that vulnerability with, they're now is, are more secure and so is their user base. And hopefully their board of directors is really happy that they've just caught a vulnerability before a criminal could. Right. Um, so you were talking about how this is a group of the most talented hackers and the upcoming talent. Um, I think a lot of people have questions about how you actually get invited to an event. Um, can you drop some knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. In my experience with it, and I'll be very open and honest about this, it's an extremely subjective process, right? Uh, the problem, I think, with every bug bounty platform is the lack of true objective data in terms of who is great and who isn't. Um, and, you know, you can keep it simple and say, oh, well, those who make the most money are the best. That's not always true. Or, you know, a lot of these uh, platforms have, you know, uh, uh, scores like reputation or kudos. And I think those can be gamified and hack, right? Hackers going to hack and they sure know how to hack those systems. Uh, Jason Haddock's actually, I think, uh, is, is a perfect example of that. He made his way up to the top of the bug crowd leaderboard. Uh, not, be, not saying that he hacked the entire thing, but he openly tells the story of how he was able, uh, to work his way up it. And I think there are hackers on Hacker One who do that too. Um, so I think the challenge is, you know, finding an objective system. And because, in my opinion, there wasn't one, we had to rely on a foundation of hackers who we already knew and then allow them to invite their friends. Uh, and these are the early days. But then eventually what we developed, uh, which is a, it, pretty much the, uh, if you think about the legacy, it's how you got invited to a live event. We would try and do things like competitions, right? So in the summer of 2017, we launched the first ever H1702 CTF. And we did essentially this competition. So hold on, um, just yeah. to clarify for the listeners, H1702, what does the 702 mean? Oh, my apologies. So the way we branded uh, the live events, essentially, we, we, we followed the same uh, way that DEF CON uh, kind of markets their meetups. We would take on the essentially the area code that we would go to. So 702 is the area code for Las Vegas. H1415 is San Francisco. 212 New York. And then when we went internationally, for example, like the annual event in Amsterdam, it would be H13120. 31 was the country code for, uh, for the Netherlands and 20 is the city code for Amsterdam. 4420 for London and, and the trend continues and grows. Uh, so for H1702 2017, we launched a CTF. And that CTF was open to the entire planet. And essentially, what we said was find the flags, but it wasn't just enough to find the flags, we wanted the people who wrote the best reports to be able to share those reports. And we would decide again, subjectively, whoever wrote the best reports would be invited to H1702. And you know, essentially airfare, hotels, everything that we do for every other person participant. Um, so we tried to come up with different ways for people to come in. Um, now, other things that we would always do in the selection process would we would look at a specific program, like for example, the customer. So for example, like when we uh, did Dropbox in Amsterdam at H13120 in 2018, we looked at the top hackers in their program and we would coordinate with the customer and say, hey, do you want to invite the following top 10? And it would be up to them. I, I think there's a this misconception in the world that it's the same people every single time. Now, there are people who perform really well at these events and obviously they get reinvited because if you perform you get to show up but obviously the, the the thing that we tried to do with every single event and i think that hacker one and bug crowd and other platforms that are trying this out are trying to do is figure out ways to not only invite uh the best talent on these platforms but to bring in up and coming talent to do more competitions to invite local talent who aren't going to affect the costs that are associated with bringing more hackers and i think that's just going to develop and grow more over time i think one of the 
things that people need to understand about live events is that it's really, really new. And we'll talk about it in our conversation, I'm sure, about how much it has progressed in just a short amount of time, all the mistakes that were made at that first event in 2016, and how much better it's gotten, and how the feedback from the community and the customers has driven uh, that kind of improvement and essentially uh, kind of the areas that have kind of been scrapped and the areas that have been built upon. So tell me about some of those mistakes. Do you remember your first uh, live hacking event and how did that go? I remember it like it was yesterday. It was it was so exciting and so much fun uh, for me because it, it, it kind of proved we were onto something and, and that, that it really worked. Um, so the first event we ever did, again, was at DEF CON in 2016 in Las Vegas. And we hosted it at the MGM... Skylofts. Uh, so essentially, MGM Grand has a special section of these very ritzy suites. And we got a, a dual level suite. So essentially, we were doing this event in a hotel room. Uh, we weren't even in a true event space. So the first mistake we made was we were running off of the hotel's internet. Uh, and, and I had maybe made 30 phone calls in into Cox, who was the ISP at the time and begging them to increase our bandwidth. Please, we're going to have, you know, a hundred people in here. We need to get as fast a speed as possible. And they tried to uh, ramp it up as much as they could, but there were times where we had a few issues there. So one of the, obviously the biggest challenges, you got to have uh, the best internet money can buy. Uh, that's something you definitely can't cheap out on. So that was, I want to call it a mistake. It was a limitation. But what we realized was that hosting in a hotel suite simply wasn't enough. Uh, to me, one of the most important things we learned was when we did that first event, we didn't reveal what, what the target was until the hackers walked in the door. Huge mistake. Massive, massive mistake. Because in an eight to 10 hour event, six to seven hours was, uh, was recon. And there weren't a lot of reports that came in early off because you had some hackers who had never touched the assets, never met the company, and they would spend a ton of time getting to know uh, who the company was and and what they cared about. And uh, that kind of relationship that needed to be built uh, weeks or days or weeks prior uh, was happening at the event. Um, so that was one thing we also learned. The other thing that we learned, and fortunately, we iterated on really quickly in the in the three days of the of the event, was that uh, hackers uh, have specific needs when it comes to what kind of environment they want to be in. Uh, when we first did it, we had you know tables and couches, and we had music playing. But we had hackers immediately who came to us who said, "We need a room that is solely quiet." There will be no music. There'll be no noise. It's a quiet room. So we, we actually flipped the switch really quickly and, and turned one of those rooms into a, a quiet room. Uh, but again, hackers were sitting on beds and some people were working out of closets and bathrooms. So it was uh, it was exciting and, and bootstrappy. Um, but there were things that, again, we had to learn that, that we immediately changed for the following events. So that was another thing we learned. Uh, well, there were things that we spent money on that we didn't need. We had, uh, we had round the clock massages going on. I don't think one hack, I don't think one hacker used it. Uh, which was, which I think is a testament to the focus of, of the bug bounty community is, uh, there, I know there were hackers at times who forget to eat or drink, which is why for me, one of the most humbling things, uh, that, that happens at these events is that you have your own staff serving hackers with food and drinks. I've even seen the CEOs of these companies, uh, taking orders for people, which I think is a, just a testament to the community, uh, and, and the, the impact that they bring. Um, but, you know, we also learn more about, you know, the swag that hackers like and the things that they care about. And, you know, they don't really, 
need a pen, but they sure do like tech gear and they sure do like uh, apparel. Um, so we learned things about that. Um, but you know, at the same time, uh, you know, for all the mistakes that we made, there was a lot of success too, right? Uh, there was a lot of money that got paid out, uh, which I think we we noticed that went really well. Obviously, hackers love the awards. We did different awards every single night. And then uh, there was obviously um, the MVH, which still stands to this day, the most valuable hacker. You know, they kind of do, a hacker one does a, uh, like a World Wrestling Federation belt. Uh, you know, the first the first hacker to ever win that was Mark Litchfield. Uh, so big shout out to him, uh, who's a va- who 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 held his own hometown. Uh, Mark lives in Las Vegas these days. But uh, you know that those are things that still go on to this day. Um, but there were things that you know at least I even noticed early in those days the collaboration, right? Noticing that people were working together um, and that that needed to be expanded upon, which we did over the coming years. Uh, but it wasn't good enough at that day. Even develop, you know, I think we even hacked together a leaderboard for them and that needed to be revamped and scaled and built up and made to be more engaging. So we had a really great foundation back in 2016, but we knew there was so much more that we could do. So I had the fortune of being invited as a plus one, as you said earlier, um, to H1415. And when I got there, I definitely expected it to be very competition focused. Like, as you just said, like hackers want to be in a quiet room. They don't want to talk. Um, or at least that was my perception of it. When I got there, there was like this sense of camaraderie throughout the entire 40, what, six people that were there. Um, was that true since the very beginning, since the very first one, or was that something that had to grow over time? It's something that was definitely there from the first one. The, the okay. challenge was how do you nurture that? How do you grow that? And I think the beauty of what hap- is ha- still happening and happened with these events is that the feedback that we get from the community is so important. Uh, and, and to me, that camaraderie that you're talking about is, is ever, is, is so apparent during show and tell. And I'll explain what that is in, in one second. And the, um, essentially what show and tell was is at H1702 2017. So one year later, uh, Franz Rosen comes up to me on the first night and he says, you know, it'd be really cool. And I said, well, tell me, Franz, what do you want? And this is late at night. And he says, we should pick the five best bugs. And we should present on them. The customer should pick which are their favorite and not give away any confidential or, you know, PII or anything too sensitive. Uh, but we should teach each other about how we found those vulnerabilities and, and we'll pick the five best. And I think Franz mentioned to me saying, Oh, yeah, that'll happen in, you know, the next six months or a year. And in just two hours later, we did the first ever show and tell at H1702 2017. And now it is a staple of every single live event, whether it's done by Hacker One or Bugcrowd or any other pa- platform. And it's so amazing because when we first did it, I didn't think people were going to care that much. I thought they'd be looking at their phones or looking at their computers. And every time I attend a show and tell, everyone's eyes are focused right at the front of the screen. And the stories that are told are hilarious. Mm-hmm. So that's the interesting thing is because like, ultimately, when you share your methodologies and you share the tools you're using and you're sharing all that... Um, as a bug bounty hunter, you're kind of also losing a little bit of profit when you do that, right? When you when someone else finds a bug because they use your methodology, um, what do you think hackers are actually motivated by, if not money then? So I would say they definitely are motivated by money. So don't okay. get that twisted. Gotcha. But I don't think okay. it's the only I don't think it's the only thing they are motiv- motivated by. They want intellectual challenge. They want uh, the ability to learn from themselves, learn from others, and learn from outside resources. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it. I think the other thing is recognition. Uh, that's why I think, you know, as you mentioned, like you thought you were going into like a competition where it was kind of, you know, 
uh, kill or be killed. And that's not the environment. But at the same time, that's why there is a leaderboard. That's why there are different awards that, you know, people can earn and, and people view it as a badge of honor. Um, so I think that recognition is really important too. So, you know, hackers want that belt. They want those awards to say, hey, I was the best at this particular event. And, and the more they collect, the better they are. I think that's, that's just natural human impulse that people and, and, and natural, you know, just human nature is that we want that recognition. Um, now, as I said, you know, the money doesn't hurt either. I think the thing, um, I think the thing that these events have shown is that there's a lot of money to go around. Right. Uh, and that happens through collaboration. That happens with people as acting, doing their own thing. Um, but, you know, getting round trip airfare, getting your hotel taken care of. And even and the thing is, for me, if you look at the leaderboards of these events, even the people who are at the bottom of the leaderboard, they some of them make, you know, out of, even if they make a thousand dollars. Right. To them, that's enough. The, the fact that they just got flown across the world or taken somewhere and they made a thousand dollars and got to meet either their heroes or see their friends who they maybe have never. Or they, so, I mean, what I love is when people say, wow, we've been talking on the Internet for years and we never met in person. And now we are. And that for me is is like that's the you know, that's the whole point of it. It's the relationship building amongst the hackers and the companies together. I, I was chatting with a hacker um at, in Las Vegas at the last event I did, it was H1702 2018. Um, uh, and the, the hacker's name is, is Tanner. Uh, it goes by Cash Money. Um, and he's a full-time bounty hunter and uh, I, I absolutely love him. He's, he's fantastic, super talented. And we were having a drink. It was like two in the morning on the final night. And he said, he's like, I came to this event literally one year ago and it was the first time I ever did it. And he said, and all the people in this room are my best friends now. And that for me... Like without, you know, kind of, uh, you know, being cheesy, like I, I almost teared up a little bit that these events introduced him to some of his and formed some of his closest relationships in his life. And, and I don't think he was blowing smoke uh, to me. I think he was telling me the truth because it was true. He had met all these fantastic people who he had shared experiences with and traveled the world with, had been given an opportunity that he maybe never would have known about Um if it if it hadn't been for a referral, Tanner got brought in through a plus one uh, at H one seven hundred two two thousand seventeen a year prior, uh, and that to me is is the benefit. Yeah, the money is fantastic for them. Uh, that's great. I love that it does that. But the relationship building that people get to know each other and get to spend time with each other, and and they're kind of craving when's the next event, when's the next city I'm going to see you in. Uh, that that to me is so so exciting and really gets to the root of the success. I think, and I think, and I think that that's it. I think it it, it kind of cuts to the to the heart of human nature is that we care about our relationships more than we care about money. We care more about our friends than we do about winning an award. Yeah, it's nice to win an award. And sure, we all want bragging rights. But in the end, those relationships that are formed are what are what matter the most. And to kind of segue a little bit, like one of the challenges with this community is diversity, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's a very male, it's a very male dominated field. Um, and uh, one of the challenges for every platform and every company is bringing in more people of diverse backgrounds. Uh, at, at the H1702 event in 2018 uh, in Vegas, we partnered with WISP to bring uh, to do actually Yobert's exact program with the CTF. And um, we had uh, some of the community managers uh, from HackerOne and talk about their experience and, and brought in... Um, some experts uh, to talk about uh, their experience working in cybersecurity. Uh, and we brought in, I think, 35 uh, young women who had experience in, in engineering and computer science, but had no experience in bug bounty and cybersecurity. And, and the hope is that that exposure 
will then lead to more opportunities, not just in bug bounty, but in just thinking more, uh, you know, with that kind of hacker mentality and bringing that to their day to day, whether they're writing code or if they get interested in, in, in finding bugs. And uh, that to me is, you know, is a big part of it too, right? Again, it's more than just finding bugs. Uh, it's really about building a uh, building an environment and a community that nurtures uh, itself uh, and grows together. Nice. Um, and speaking of giving back, there's also something called a community day. Is that right? During the Hacker One events. Great. Uh, yeah, that's amazing that you brought that up. So um, actually, it was the year before uh, I met you. It was actually H one four one five two thousand in seventeen, the first San Francisco event. Um, I had it, this. Actually, goes uh, back into my background when I got out of college. Um, I actually was. Uh, I worked in the nonprofit sector in New York. Um, for a group called Harlem RBI, which provides after-school programming for inner-city youth while also providing uh, free baseball and softball programming. I used to be a, a former professional baseball player and played in college for a while. And after that, I actually was a special education teacher in New York. So I'm very, uh, very passionate about education, but more importantly, working with uh, with students, both middle school and high school, and even in, in university students too. So what we decided to do in that San Francisco uh, event was to bus in around 30 uh, middle school and high school students from the the San Francisco area and teach them about cybersecurity uh, and, and hacking and, and essentially the future that's there because there is so much that can be done in the world of cybersecurity outside of being technical, right? There are people who work in sales, people who work in marketing, people who work in program management. So there's a whole career for them here. And a lot of them don't know about it due to a lack of awareness. And obviously, uh, that's one thing I think cybersecurity is trying to do is trying to uh, expose itself as a great place to build a career. Um, and what we did essentially was in the morning, and this still goes on uh, to this day uh, through both HackerOne and BugCrowd and other platform events. Um, in the morning, the, the goal is to inspire, right? So you bring in role models to talk about their experience. And and in my in my belief, you know, there's no one better to inspire than the hackers themselves. So in the first one, Franz gave a talk. Um, uh, Pete Jaworski, for those who don't know, Pete, Pete is a, an amazing, amazing person, uh, really devoted to education in the field. Uh, and he's actually currently a... Um, a security engineer at Shopify, uh, based in Toronto. I'll actually, I'll, I'll cite, let me segue for a second. The, the thing I love about Pete is Pete met the Shopify security team at a live hacking event. They met in San Francisco, H14 and 5, 2017. And from that introduction, Pete then continued his conversation with Shopify and got a job from it. So that's another thing that's amazing about these events is they open up career opportunities for people as well. Um, but uh, so to go back to these community days, you know, so we had Pete and, and Franz um, kind of inspire in the morning and talk about hacking and how it works. But the cool thing uh, that we did in the afternoon, and this is, you know, this has really nothing to do with me. This is all uh, the power of someone like Yobert Abba, who used to, who's again, who I mentioned is a co-founder of HackerOne. Yobert would then teach that group all about hacking. And he developed custom CTFs. He would provide them with educational material. And it was an absolutely amazing opportunity that we saw that needed to be scaled. And, and what we did from there was we developed an informal partnership with uh, Code.org. Uh, I don't know if you know of Code.org, uh, for those who are listening. Code.org's mission is to essentially empower, empower uh, every middle school, elementary, middle school, and high school student to learn about uh, uh, computer science. Uh, they're based in Seattle, Washington. They were uh, found Founded by the um, Ali and Hadi Partovi, um, who uh, are very well-known technologists in the United States. Uh, and what they would do is help us source 
the students in whatever U.S. market we were in. So uh, we had done community days in San Francisco, New York City, Washington, D.C. And every time we would bring in high school students, middle school students to with that same format, inspiration in the morning, learning in the afternoon. Um, and it, it's been it's been ma- amazing uh, to see it progress and grow. Uh, and again, just to see um, how important it's been to kind of allowing uh, the bug bounty community to help shape the shape the future uh, and, and the next and the next generation of hackers or people who are going to work in the industry as well. Yeah, no, it was really cool for me to see like, you know, Franz Rosen or like Nafi just walk around and kind of give these kids like tips on the CTFs. Um, for me, and I'm, I'm always curious about like, and maybe maybe this is a question for Yobert eventually, but like, how do you build a CTF for kids to do like that's so cool? Uh, I can, we, we work very closely on it. The thing, the first thing I think that Yobert does an amazing job on is he just talks about the mindset, right? And the first exercise, the first exercise that we always used to do, uh, and it was a fun little giveaway is we would give kids, um, a Rubik's cube. And I think some people looked at that Rubik's cube saying, well, I don't have the skill set to do this. Yobert would say, think like a hacker. And what that meant was you don't have to follow all the rules. You can Google it. You can break it apart and put it back together. And Yobert uh, would kind of get them to understand that it's not just about the traditional way of solving it. There sometimes are more ways to solve it. And sometimes you have to break it, uh, just like just like you mentioned. And actually, I remember a great story Yobert told about a student in New York who saw one that was already completed and grabbed it and went to Yobert and said, look, I solved it. And Yobert said, you're right, you win. Uh, and, it, you know, again, it's that hacker mentality. So from there, Yobert would then do some cryptography exercises, right? And he would teach them about how to kind of look at different patterns and, and kind of thinking a little bit more uh, in a developer mindset. And then from there, he would actually give them a URL and then say, okay, now you've got the CTF. And again, it was, uh, you know, in some cases, it was very elementary and beginner level, but we saw students who would crush these things. And the coolest part about it is that we would always give out cash prizes. But the so 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 for the students who actually did solve them, um, Yobert would then give them cash money. But the only way they could earn that money was by getting up on stage and teaching the rest of the students how they solved it. And that's one of the things that Yobert, myself, and other people at Hacker One, and I know I know people at other platforms are very passionate about this too, is that it's not just enough to find the bug. You have to share the information. And that's why things like show and tell, that's why things like, you know, when you do an event like this, like if you want to earn your bounty, you have to share how you solve it. And that's, you know, just like when we do the CTFs, when people enter into these competitions to get invited to a live event, it's not just enough to find the flag. You have to explain how you found that flag in the most concise and respectable manner possible. Because after those CTFs end, we obviously encourage people to share their write-ups, right? Because it essentially what we're saying is that it's not just enough to be a great hacker. You have a responsibility to share what you've learned with others. Uh, and I think that something is one thing that has blown me away about the community is not, is that, I think the lone wolves, you know, the people who just want to make their money and be left alone, I think they are few and far between. I think the majority of hackers who I've met in my time, they want to learn from others. They want to share what they're doing. Uh, and they want to, they want to educate each other. And it's a two way street. They want to learn, but they also want to teach too. Hacker One is known for being like a really awesome bug bounty program, but it's also known, at least among my peers, like they have the best swag. Can I get a hoodie too? And uh, what has been, I guess, your favorite piece of swag? Oh, wow. Great question. Uh, there's so many, so many things that I've loved. Uh, actually, my favorite is the hacker onesie. Uh, and I'll tell the story of the hacker onesie. Uh, the hacker onesie uh, is actually ex- exactly what it, it is, is it's a, it's an adult onesie, a big, 
you know, kind of footy pajama uh, thing. And uh, HackerOne, uh, like a lot of technology companies, does an annual all-hands meeting where they fly in everyone from around the world into San Francisco. Uh, uh, Martin Miko's CEO talks about, you know, goals and planning and people, you know, there's all this different kind of programming. Um, and as the chief of staff, I used to run it every single year with a whole host of other people from the company, but I would MC it and, and, and help Martin and other members of the executive team do programming. And in the first year we did it, I was in charge of kind of uh, the kind of you know, team event that would be done. Uh, so what I developed was a, a scavenger hunt throughout San Francisco. Uh, so we did, we broke up in the teams of like five or six and they had to run around all of San Francisco and take photos and videos of all these things they were doing. And it was super cheesy, right? You know, go to the baseball stadium, go eat oysters, clam chowder, do all those silly things. And you had to document your, uh, your progress, uh, through photos and videos and upload them to Slack. Uh, but the thing, the caveat was, was that everyone had to do it in their hacker, their brand new hacker onesies. So it was kind of a guerrilla marketing event uh, where where you had essentially a hundred people running around San Francisco in these adult, uh, you know, jumpsuits slash pajamas. Uh, and ironically, uh, the current VP of engineering uh, at Hacker One, who hadn't been, who wasn't at Hacker One at the time, said that was the first time I heard about the company when I saw all these people running around San Francisco in these onesies. So I, I kind of indirectly like to think of it. It was our first touch point when we recruited him to join the company. Um, but yeah, that was always my favorite, and I still wear it to this day. I'll tell you, uh, it's been raining a lot in San Francisco this winter and spring, and on a cold night, uh, there's nothing better than that. I would say the other piece of swag I always loved, and you've got two of these now, are the challenge coins. Um, I think the challenge coins are really special. And for the people who don't know the history of challenge coins, they're, uh, they're actually uh, started by um, the U.S. military during World War One, And initially, they were uh, used as an identifier, right? Let's say, you know, an enemy came up to you or your, your own men came up to you and said, hey, prove that you're uh, you know, a member of the U.S. Army. You would show your, your coin that demonstrated that you were, weren't the enemy. Um, and they aren't used that way anymore, uh, but the way they're used now is they're used uh, for a lot of uh, decorative and collector's items. And essentially what we, the first time they were used, uh, I'm pretty sure was in the first um, hack the uh, DOD. And the DOD had said, hey, Hacker HackerOne, uh, let's work with you in helping us uh, develop uh, a challenge coin. And what we agreed on was, well, hey, like if they're good enough for the U.S. military as a, as a commemorative, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, item, uh, we should do them for the live events too. And now every single event uh, has a commemorative coin. And at Hacker One, they've got a big case with every single coin from every single event. And for the hackers, it's a collector's item too, right? It's the opportunity to say, hey, I was there. And, and it's kind of your proof, right? It's not just a t-shirt, but having this kind of physical item uh, was super important. And I actually, I don't know of a hacker who has every single one. The closest might be uh, Franz Rosen, because I think he's been to a few of them, but I think he's uh, he's missed a few recently, so he's got to catch up. Um, so actually, interestingly, um, the art on the challenge coins is also done by the same person who does the art for... At the so at the end of your live event, you give out awards and you give out these really awesome posters, which are kind of based off of comic book superheroes. And that all of that art is done by one person or one studio. Uh, it's one person. Yeah, he has a studio. He works with his wife. His name is uh, he goes. His handle is Angry Blue. I would highly recommend all of you to uh, look him up. Uh, he is insanely talented. Uh, his his name is Justin. He's based in uh, Kentucky. And uh, I am extremely privileged to have met Justin. He has made me look so cool and so talented uh, when I actually have nothing to take credit for. Um, but I met Justin actually in 
the summer of 2015, right when I started Hacker One, because I wanted to do a new T-shirt design. Uh, and actually, the, our first project was a poster. Um, and actually, together we developed um, the tagline that is a, is a staple of Hacker One now, which is "Together We Hit Harder." And essentially, the idea we came up with in that first poster design—it actually was two different poster designs—was the idea of you know essentially a robot fighting a bug. Uh, right. And, and that robot was vulnerable, right? It had chinks in the armor, like all software, all software has vulnerabilities. And that was kind of that representation, just as all software has bugs. And there will always be this fight between machines and bugs. And we essentially base it off of two famous pieces of artwork. The first was the, the, the very famous uh, uh, photo of Muhammad Ali uh, knocking out Sonny Liston. Uh, and he's standing over him, kind of like, I just won. So that was the first one we based off of. And if for anyone who's ever seen uh, the original office at Hacker One, we had this big graffiti wall. Uh, and Justin actually came in to San Francisco and installed it. And we we put all these posters up. And the second one uh, is famous, um, is, is from a famous painting from the 1920s, I believe, by a famous American artist named George Bellows. Uh, and it's, and I think it's called like Boxing Night, I think is the name of the painting. And essentially it's this, uh, boxer knocking another boxer, uh, through the ring. He knocks him so hard, he knocks him out. And that's exactly what, uh, Justin recreated, essentially this robot knocking the bug, uh, through the ring and all these bugs watching being like, oh no, like the, the robot's winning. Uh, and we had such an amazing time working together. It was so easy. Uh, it was so, uh, simple. Uh, especially from the creative, uh, from the, on the creative side, which can be actually really challenging, right? You have an artist and you have a vision and it's tough to come together, but it was so simple that, uh, you know, once we did the first H1702 um, in 2016, it just, it just flew off the shelf. We knew exactly what we wanted to do. And every single subsequent event, we had a, a fantastic custom logo that he would draw. Now to come up with the comic posters, um, at that time, uh, in the spring of 2017, was the first time we did the first five comic book posters. Um, and that was actually a, a collaboration between myself and, and the current uh, VP of marketing at HackerOne, a guy named Tim DeRosa. And Tim essentially said, well, my, my brand vision for hackers is portraying them as heroes, right? We, you know, we have this horrible stigma in the industry that hackers are bad people, right? When we think of hackers, they're criminals. And obviously, that's not true. So we need to kind of change that image. And I said, well, why don't we just take famous comic books and we'll kind of pick our five favorite hackers who are attending and people who've been a huge part of the community and let's just let's just like redo them and I'll talk to Justin and see if he can make it happen uh, and we launched them and obviously they're a massive hit uh, people love them and I, I think the first you know in the first five we based them off of um, let's see the hackers were Franz Rosen Mark Litchfield Sean Malia who goes by Niels um, Pete Jaworski uh, no sorry Pete Jaworski was the following year I think um Oh gosh, who were the other? Oh, uh, Geek Boy, uh, Sandeep Singh, uh, and then Santiago, Santiago Lopez, who we talked about earlier. Um, and, uh, essentially, you know, I think, uh, Franz and Mark were based off of Superman. Um, uh, Santiago was based off of, uh, the incredible, uh, the incredible Hulk. Um, Geek Boy was based off of Thor. So how uh, do you, how do you decide on who becomes which superhero? Uh, Oh, you know, honestly, it was just kind of that creative process. You talk about it together, you share the inspiration and, and you could, you know, that's the thing. Justin is so talented. You kind of have to get out of, uh, get out of his way and let him do his thing. Um, and, and, you know, for, I think when you work with a creative like that, you show them your inspiration, you show them their ideas and then they run with it. And then you kind of give feedback and you iterate and you make it happen. But I think, you know, the benefit of the relationship I've had with him. Uh, is that it's been it's so easy to work with someone like him 
uh, from my perspective, because we, we really are in sync in terms of putting things together uh, and collaborating. And that's why, you know, the following year, uh, when we did five more, it was, it was even that easier. Uh, you know, I had the five posters that inspired us, the five hackers that we wanted to um, kind of acknowledge. Uh, and and it, it was fantastic. And it's, it's a great badge of honor, I think, uh, for the researchers um, to, to be able to get something like that. And again, it's not just, you know, again, it was a subjective process and the people that we chose. And uh, obviously, that's something uh, that can always be improved upon. Um, but I think for us is we wanted to acknowledge people who weren't just great hackers, but were great people. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, for example, I, I mentioned, I made the mistake that, you know, Pete Jaworski got it the first year, but Pete got it the second year. Uh, and that's one of my favorite posters of all. We, it, we took a famous Punisher, uh, comic book cover and, 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 and used Pete for that. And, and, you know, for someone like Pete, who obviously doesn't get to hack as much because he has a full-time job in security, but he's so committed to education. He's so committed to helping hackers. I mean, he's written a whole book on it and he's done a great job in distributing it. Uh, that, that kind of, um, that kind of commitment to the community needs to be rewarded and, and acknowledged. And that, that's kind of what we wanted to show uh, by picking someone like him. Nice. Um, so let's zoom a little bit closer to the future. Um, so as you said, you know, after, ha- after leaving HackerOne, uh, you were an advisor to BugCrowd for a little bit. Uh, and you helped them, I assume you helped them with those live events, with those bug bashes? Yeah, I think it was important, uh, you know, for me... Every one of these platforms has amazing hackers. Some hack on both, some hack only on one. Um, I, I think, you know, these events uh, need to be done by everybody. Uh, everyone, you know, again, the mission of all these companies is, is to, you know, to build a safer internet. Were there differences in the challenges between, you know, your, your or rather like the knowledge that you took from working with HackerOne Live events? Um, how did you apply that and improve bug bashes? Um... I think for me, really, the uh, the the challenges doing them at a place like Bugcrowd was really not about uh, educating the hackers. The hackers already knew how great they are. It was just about educating their own internal culture on the value of them and and educating their customers, right? Uh, people who have never done them. And you know, I worked with the Atlassian team on that uh, event in Australia, and I remember the first call we had. I, I kind of brought my New York approach to things. I was very direct. Uh, very fast paced. And I, and they had some suggestions and ideas that I kind of shot down, uh, not because they were, uh, uh, they, I was trying to be combative with them in any means, but I wanted to show them that the power of these events was about us taking, of kind of handling all the logistics and for them to focus on building relationships with hackers, getting great bugs. And, and a perfect example is like they wanted to host the event at their offices, right? And for me, that's a, that's a challenge because it means then they're in charge of logistics. They're in charge of security and trash removal and making sure, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes when it comes to these events. Um, and I had to be kind of very direct and open with them. And, and I think the team at Lassen was taken aback at first. But the thing that, you know, bring, gives me so much pride, uh, is that at the end of that event, um, the security team came up to me, shook my hand and said, you delivered just as you promised. You took care of everything. We got the bugs. We built so many relationships. And even the CISO said to me, we want to do one of these every single quarter. Uh, and that to me is like, wow, not only was the team on the ground in love with it, but executive management saw the benefit too. Uh, and, and that for me is so important because a happy customers means a happy company, which means happy hackers and the whole ecosystem, uh, really sees the benefit of it. Uh, the other thing I talked about was kind of getting internal buy-in, right? When someone like me comes in as an advisor, uh, or as a, you know, kind of a contractor, 
generally, you know, there's people have a bit of a sour taste. Typical, you know, uh, consultants come in, they say a lot of things and they don't do a lot of stuff and they, they add on to people's work, right? And I think that was one of the things I tried to promise the bug guard team. And I think I kept my word on was that I wasn't going to give them more work, but instead I was going to take a lot of things off their plate and help them together develop their own personalized kind of blueprint for how they want to shape their events. And uh, it definitely wasn't a copy and paste uh, from Hacker One. It, instead, it was the opposite. It was really, what do you care about? What things matter to you from a branding perspective, from a message perspective, um, and really a relationship perspective when it comes with the researchers slash hackers and the customer too. And we really developed a ground up, uh, you know, I called it blueprint or foundation uh, for them to be able to do more of them. And I think they're doing a few of them this year. So I'm excited to see how they go. And, you know, uh, you know, anytime they need informal advice, I'm always happy to help them. I, again, I think they're uh, a great company and a, and a great group of people. And, and honestly, you know, I know there's a there's this kind of competition between all the platforms and, and that's all well and good, but they're all trying to do the right thing, right? Which is essentially build and develop a safer internet. So speaking of this competition, um, not necessarily between bug bounty platforms, but there's been a little bit of, you know, like Twitter drama about bug bounty companies versus like pen testing firms. And there's a little bit, well, or rather, uh, there was a statement from the Trail of Bits report that's uh, a tiny, only a tiny fraction of hunters claim the vast majority of bounties. Uh, they do so by spending the least amount of time on the most lucrative bugs. Uh, what do you think of that? I think the Trail of Bits uh, post or report, however we want to describe it, I think it, there's some veracity to it. But I think the problem is, is they're relying on public information. I've done these analyses uh, that they're talking about. The problem is they don't, they're not able to see behind the curtain and that's not their fault. Um, I think some of the conclusions are somewhat accurate, but not completely. And, and I'll talk about specifics in a second. Um, but I, I think, you know, I think the marketing speak that there are hundreds of thousands of hackers around the world saving the internet day in, day out is a little uh, hyperbolic and it's kind of marketing speak, right? Uh, I think it is true that the number of people who are really making a lot of money is a smaller number. Um, but I don't think it's as small as that report makes it out to be. Uh, and, and part of the reason why they, they, that it's not true is because they didn't have the insight into uh, one of the most popular things that happens in bug bounty, which is private programs. Private programs bring in a ton of money. Uh, and for, for right reasons, right? Why would a company run a private program? Well, public programs encounter a lot of noise. Uh, or some public, uh, some private programs, they literally, I mean, I know private programs on both platforms or other platforms that have like only three or four hackers invited, right? And they spend maybe, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but it only goes into the pockets of a few people, which is really to me more like almost like a consulting agreement and kind of like a traditional ongoing pen testing agreement than really a bug bounty. Um, so I think, you know, while there were some things I agree with that report, I think they missed out a few points just because they didn't have the data in front of them. Uh, and, and that's, again, that's not their fault. Uh, but I think therefore some of their conclusions weren't uh, completely accurate, uh, just because they weren't able to see the, the, the whole picture. Um, but, but I would agree that, you know, that are there, you know, uh, again, hundreds of thousands of people making tons and tons of money? Uh, definitely not. Uh, but I think the number is bigger than they expect. And I, and, and I think the other thing which the report brought up is that there are hackers in, you know, other parts of the world where the US dollar, um, it, it, it makes a massive impact on their lifestyle. Um, I don't think it's totally fair to say that the that the folks in in those uh, areas um, are are just submitting low hanging fruit. I think there are some of the most talented people in those areas. Um, but you know, again, it's 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 not as black and white. There's shades of gray to it. Yeah, there are some people who um, are 
are kind of you know using scanners and sending and getting that low hanging fruit. But there are also people who are finding some massive, massive uh, vulnerabilities. People like uh, Geek Boy, uh, people like my maybe my favorite handle in all of Bug Bounty, uh, a young man in India named Pranav who goes by the handle Cool Boss. Maybe my favorite handle in the world. I love I love Pranav and his handle Cool Boss. So amazing. Uh, they find great. I mean, just look at Pranav's uh, profile on Hacker One. He just got a, like almost a 10k bug from Snapchat. Like you don't walk into a 10k bug on something like Snapchat, which is one of the most hardened services I've ever seen. So uh, again. I, I think I, I actually like the discussion. I think it's it's a, a worthy discussion to have. I just think the conclusions can't be black or white. I think there there has to be a middle ground, uh, you know, with that conversation. Yeah. Um, no, I definitely and I agree. Um, well, so it's interesting that you say that in some private programs, it's almost like an ongoing pen testing engagement. Um, you know, there's also been announcements of HackerOne and BugCrowd both looking into providing pen testing services. Um, what do you think about that? I, I think it's inevitable. It was inevitable. Something I had uh, talked about in my days at HackerOne that's something that should be approached. Uh, and right, I mean, think about it this way: the you know, if you if you just Google it, I think it's estimated that the pen testing market is almost a you know a two billion dollar industry. Uh, at the moment. And when it comes to selling a bug bounty program to some technology companies, there's a lot of education, right? Like if you go to a company that doesn't have a bug bounty program, then that, then that kind of that buyer has to then go to their superior and say, Hey, I need budget for a bug bounty program. That means the sales cycle for getting a bug bounty program could take up to a year, right? Let's say you start pitching to someone in February, their fiscal year starts in January. Well, then you're going to have to wait a whole year till it gets into that budget. The one thing about pen testing that we already know is that pen tests have been going on for over 10, 15 years, right? So that money has already been allocated for pen testing every single year. And what the numbers are showing is that the numbers are only going up, right? That companies are spending more and more every year on pen testing. So for companies like BugCrowd and HackerOne to now go to these companies saying, hey, guess what? We offer pen testing services. Then instead of having to convince that company or that buyer to go find the money, they already have the money and they can just reallocate it from one vendor to another. So I think it's, to me, it was something that was bound to happen. It should be, it shouldn't be surprising to the pen testing community. What it does change for companies like HackerOne and BugCrowd is they've now jumped into a much bigger pool. They now need to compete with some of the big boys and girls out there you know, the NCC groups, uh, companies like Cobalt that has made this pivot a while ago, uh, and I think is doing a very good job in selling pen testing services. Um, and there's a whole host of vendors who I, who I don't even know about, I'm sure. I mean, even companies like White Hat Security, I mean, uh, there's, there's millions of pen testing firms. So I think it's smart in terms of they're going after money that's already been approved in these budgets. But the flip side of the coin is there's now more competition in these deals and they're going to start uh, getting into pricing wars. Um, the other thing I would say, at least in my experience and what I've seen with pen testing, uh, there's a compliance component to it too. So, right, there's a, a new form of delivery that needs to come for these customers. People do a pen test because they get a pretty report that they then can submit and they, you know, for lack of a better term, are checking the box. Uh, so now these two companies now have to deliver that kind, that compliance, and they need to make sure that they are checking the box appropriately. Uh, that is not as easy as it sounds, no matter what industry you're in, especially when you dip yourself into a compliance-driven uh, market. Uh, you need to ensure that you are providing that service at the highest level, because because there's so much competition there, uh, eventually, if someone comes in and says, hey, you're not getting the service you deserve, well, then they can just change on a dime. I think the thing that we haven't touched on um, yet is that you were one of the first 100 employees at WeWork um, and that you've built a career around uh, community building in that sense. 
Um, and now you are starting a new company. Um, what is that company? Um, <laughs> great question. And, and, uh, I don't want to give away, away too much, but, uh, it's, it actually taps, you know, what do they call it? I'm in stealth mode. Um, but it's, uh, it's essentially tapping into my passion for community building, but also my passion for real estate. Um, uh, to explain in a little bit more detail, I see uh, essentially what I consider an existential crisis happening in the real estate world. Uh, and I see, um, customers who are using real, certain forms of real estate, uh, in a way that it's not meant to be used. Uh, so it's essentially taking two problems and providing a solution, uh, for, for them. Um, but it, it goes back to my kind of my co-working roots early, uh, as an early employee at WeWork. Uh, but also at the same time, uh, I, I, you know, the experience that I have had in the cybersecurity community has been invaluable. Um, I think I have a much different approach with how I, uh, use technology. Um, you know, the, I think I might have gone into the world of cybersecurity, not really thinking that everything is vulnerable. And, and, I, and I kind of live with that skepticism now. Uh, and I don't even want to call it skepticism. Actually, I would rather say I've seen the light. Every single device I touch, every piece of software I use, I know has bugs in it. Um, it's part of the reason why I don't want autonomous driving. <laughs> I would have, I, and people must think I'm crazy. Like, oh, like, it's going to be amazing. Like, I don't want software running uh, something that could kill me. Uh, I would, if someone's going to die in a car, it's going to be my fault, uh, not a computer's fault. Um, but, that, but that's a bit of a segue, but, um, but because of that, you know, kind of experience in, um, in cybersecurity, I think, uh, I, I take a much different approach to now how I, I approach the solution to the problem I'm trying to solve uh, and realizing that a allowing people to have complete control over their data, allowing people to uh, ensure that they're on secure wireless networks, uh, and that, uh, you know, that, you know, using, uh, for a network, the uh, you know, uh, using the password, uh, password uh, does not suffice. Um, but that um, I also think I've learned so much from the community too, is is having a hacker mentality. And I think it's something uh, that I've always had, uh, but maybe it's something I haven't always realized. Um, and you talked about that kind of sense of entrepreneurship. I think that's something that also came out, especially uh, as I developed the live hacking events, it kind of proved to myself that I could build something from scratch. Um, and, you know, not just build it, but scale it, develop it, uh, and, and, and see something that had value, not just on one side of the marketplace, but in every side of the marketplace, right? It, it served the customers. It served the hackers. It definitely served the company, uh, not just from a sales and marketing perspective, which I think is where everyone looks, but, uh, also from a culture perspective, from a programming perspective. Uh, I think the live hacking events, uh, initially became a very, uh, became a differentiator. Uh, for Hacker One, uh, and now obviously it's been recognized by other platforms, and they're starting to do it too uh, because they see the value of it. Um, but that that kind of uh, entrepreneurial spirit, I think, I think it honestly, it's in it's in a lot of us. But sometimes we don't know that we have it. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, I've been thinking about this business idea for over two years while I was at Hacker One, uh, and then the itch got so strong that eventually I said I had I had to leave, and I just had to kind of uh, kind of you know, take the leap, as they say. Uh, and uh, here I am, you know, essentially eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day and living off my savings until I uh, raise my, uh, my, my fund, my funding. But uh, it's been exciting over the past few months. So you so you were saying that, you know, like, you're, you're living on your savings, and you're eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but you're still working really hard. And you have, like, 
I mean, we were talking about this before. Like, you are also extra, you are extroverted. Um, you have a like a lot of energy, but you also have to prove people right in when they give you like this chance. Um, do you ever feel like you come close to burning out? Um, great question. Uh, I'd say not not burning out. I'd say just more the idea of stepping back. Um, and 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 I think. You know, I, I'm not the kind of person who who works 20 hours a day. Uh, I, I truly believe in the importance of stepping away, going for a walk, taking or whatever whatever you're passionate about uh, that isn't your job, isn't your work, uh, is so crucial for for me. That's you know, I'm, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I you know I used to play professional baseball, so I still play baseball on the weekends. I'm a huge cinephile. I love going to the movies, and it's one of my favorite escapes. Uh, so I love going to the movies and just kind of being getting lost in someone else's stories and 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 get it taking you know getting taking your mind off of things um but with that being said i'm not gonna kid anybody you gotta work hard uh you gotta push yourself um but it's about you know i hate that i kind of hate the term work-life balance um uh not not that i don't believe in it it just it kind of it, it's kind of a cheap saying to me like we have like if you don't have balance in your life you're going to burn out you're going to drop dead <laughs> from overworking uh it's it's more about just having your own personal you know setting your own personal standards and 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 sticking to those standards and saying hey like you know for me it's like every single day i am going to walk or ride a bike or get outside if i'm stuck inside my apartment or a coffee shop or a, uh, a co-working space all day then i'm going to feel like garbage um, so it's just about having kind of that routine and that pattern knowing, you know, like, I mean, one of the things I sometimes work so much, I forget to drink water, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, and that happens to a lot of people. So it's just reminding yourself like, Hey, you need water to live, drink water. Hey, you need exercise. Like it's, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty general, like being outside, going on walks, being around animals, like those things like are better for your mental state. Um, and also I think it's important that like, when you don't think about work, it actually is going to make you more productive when you are doing work, right? You need to have those escapes. If you're thinking about working all the time, and a lot of people talk about this, you see all these medium posts and stories like, it hasn't been proven that working 18 hours a day makes you more productive. It actually proves that you don't, you aren't. You like, we need to be more efficient with how we spend our time. And I mean, I think one of the challenges that we have is we've got so many distractions, like from social media to all our phones. Um, it's very uncommon, I think, for people to just sit and focus on something for a large amount of time, um, because we have all these distractions, uh, and I've been trying to practice different things that allow me to just kind of stay laser focused on my task for, you know, half an hour to an hour so that I'm as productive as possible. So speaking of work, um, what do you, what is the most important thing to you in your work life? It's, it's very interesting. Uh, I read a blog post recently about someone describing that being a CEO is a very lonely job. Um, and I, I kind of agree with it. I don't totally agree with it, but because I, I don't have a team, right. I'm, I'm my own, I'm running this whole thing on my own. I have a ton of advisors and people who are helping me. Uh, it's actually gotten to be very lonely, uh, because I work a lot from home and I work from a lot of places. So, uh, it's, it's kind of unnatural for me to, not, to work all by myself, uh, all the time when I'm used to being around people. So I've had to, um, I've had to force myself to almost be social uh, during times where it's always just kind of been there for me. So I'll go to a coffee shop and start randomly talking to people or go to, uh, you know, co-working spaces and talk to people, uh, call up my friends at all hours of the day, just to have someone to talk to, to bounce ideas off of, uh, because that's actually how I work best. 
I'm a very collaborative person. Uh, I, 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 a lot of my great ideas come from sharing those ideas with other people. And a lot of my bad ideas get shot down because I present them to people and say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you ever do that? And I need, and I need that feedback. Um, so, so it's, it's, that's actually been the biggest, uh, thing that's, that's been put in front of me that has been very unnatural is being alone all the time. Uh, when I, and I essentially have to force myself to be sociable. Cause I mean, uh, if you're know, just sitting in front of a computer, uh, isn't what my business is all about. My business is very social and very collaborative. Um, so I have to, I have to almost force that on myself, uh, just to kind of maintain that, um, that kind of socialization that I need. So, I'm curious because um, I can't. I, I don't think I can do that. Um, I think I have to, you know, like DM someone on Twitter and then ask them or like beg them to be on this podcast. So, how do you go to a coffee shop and how do you sit down and just start talking to someone? Oh, it's always uh, you always got to dangle a carrot. In the interest of my business, I'm always doing uh, market research. Uh, so for me, I'll give someone, you know, if I walk into a Starbucks and I want to pick someone's brain, I'll give them like a $10 gift card. Say, Hey, do you mind if I interview you for 15 minutes? Or if you see something, you know, someone reading a book or, uh, um, a newspaper, you can always comment and, and you know, Hey, what are you reading there? Or, oh, I read that article. Do you like it? Um, what I find is that people of our generation, you know, millennials, Gen Z can kind of be standoffish, but man, I am the king of talking to old ladies and old men. They love talking to someone like me because, uh, A, I'm a bit of an old soul, so I can definitely relate to them uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, I think naturally we're social creatures, extroverted, introverted, it doesn't matter. It's just about getting someone to open up. And that's what I've experienced with most introverts uh, is it's not that they don't want to talk to people. I just think they might not be the person to start the conversation or to grab the microphone and, and lead it. But they still have something very interesting and relevant to say. You just have to kind of figure out how to approach them. Uh, again, what's their communication API, right? That's kind of uh, the way you've got to learn about it. And uh, and and I almost look, that's kind of the root of hospitality, right? Uh, every great hotel, every great restaurant, being a step ahead of someone and what they need and what they care about. Um, I know you didn't ask me directly, uh, but you know one of my uh, people I look up to in the business world is uh, the famous restaurateur Danny Meyer, uh, who who his first hotel is uh, was Union Square Cafe, and he's probably best known because he essentially launched Shake Shack. He's the CEO of Union Square uh, Ven- uh, Union Square Ventures, Union Square Hospitality, uh, and they own Shake Shack. And uh, if for people listening, if you want to read an amazing business book, it's called Setting the Table. Uh, it's written by Danny Meyer, and it's essentially a book in three parts. Uh, the first part is about essentially about his uh, his passion for food and how he grew up around food and his family and traveling. And the second part is kind of his journey launching his first restaurant, Union Square Cafe. And the third part, which is probably the most relevant, is eventually all the things that he's learned in the world of hospitality and restaurants and how it applies to every single business. And he stack ranked essentially every components of a business. And essentially it's five things. It's investors, partners, customers, employees, and uh, so, um, uh, suppliers. Uh, and to him, the number one most important thing is employees. And that to me is something that really, really resonated because the people who do all of the work to make his company successful, to make his brand as big as it is, uh, it starts with them. Uh, because if he has great employees, that means he's going to have happy customers. If he's got happy customers, that means that he's going to have more opportunities to work with different partners and suppliers. And if all of those things work together, then his investors are going to be the happiest people in the world. Um, and, and, and ironically, in my experience in the startup and tech world, uh, for some reason, it's all been flipped. Uh, I see a lot of companies 
that, and this isn't speaking to any specific, my, any direct experience on my end, but you read about it, all the stuff with Elizabeth Holmes and uh, Theranos and, and a lot of kind of the hoopla that goes on in, in the startup world in venture is that you see people who care about their investors first. And I get it. You know, they're giving you money. You've got to pay them back. But those investors are never going to get a return if the company culture is we don't care about employees and we don't care about customers. What is something that you see happening in cybersecurity that worries you? Um, ooh, interesting question. Uh, here's what worries me. I get worried that hackers are going to become commoditized. Okay, uh, interesting. And I worry that all the success that they generate... Uh, for these companies and for these platforms is that they're going to be viewed uh, for lack of a better term as, you know, just meat, right? Meat for the grinder. Um, and, and I don't, and I don't think, I don't think they're being taken advantage of, but what I do think they're doing is I think they're being undervalued. I think the, the vulnerabilities, I, I think the market is still uh, very young. Uh, and I think hackers are not, I actually don't think hackers are being paid properly. Um, if you think, if you look at previous breaches, Home Depot, Target, Sony, Think about how much money it costs these companies. And it's not just uh, the breach itself, right? It's the insurance. It's the PR. We're talking hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not, you know, potentially billions of dollars. Um, now, the vulnerabilities that are being found on these bug bounty platforms, the, the criticals, right, that in some cases are getting paid out as low as 5K, if those vulnerabilities made it into the wild, how much would they, I mean, right. let's just say at its lowest level. Let's say, let's say a 5K bug, you know, out in the wild, if it got exploited and, and used by bad people, by criminals, that bug was cost that company, let's say at the, in the, the smallest scenario, a million dollars. So that hacker just got 5K for something that really would have cost them a million bucks. Now, that doesn't mean that hacker should get a million dollars. I'm not saying that. But what I think hackers need to also do, and again, this is, you know, strength in numbers. I want to see the community put its foot down in some instances. I get I get discouraged when I see some massive corporations that have market caps in the billions of dollars that don't run bug bounty programs, but run VDPs. Oh, give us free bugs, right? That to me is, that's discouraging. And, or when a company that, you know, has a massive, you know, that has a massive market cap offers 5K for a critical. That That to me is, you know, I don't. I don't want to use terms like unacceptable or disgraceful. That that's not the right terminology. But it's unfair. Uh, and again, it, it feels like hackers are being uh, being used uh, for their their work uh, based on whether where they're from or whether this company is an experience. And and uh, some of that responsibility falls on the platform, right? They need to educate their customers and saying, hey, listen, like your payouts are a little low. And if the company's like, well, we don't have budget. Then I would almost say then, A, maybe bug bounty isn't right for you, which they probably won't say because, again, they're, uh, you know, they don't want to lose out on their contracts and their money and blah, blah, blah. Um, but in the end, this whole industry happens because of people like you and Joel and Franz and Inti and Pete and, you know, the Andres of this world. If the hackers leave, the business dies, right? So therefore, the most important entity in this entire marketplace is you. So therefore, they need to treat you not like celebrities or gods, but they need to treat you like people and make sure that the, the money that you are earning is fair. Um, and I get a little discouraged when I see uh, unfair bounties. I get discouraged when I see people who are really, really valuable, who aren't getting treated properly. Uh, and, and those people, and again, they're delivering value uh, in the form of, of essentially protecting that company from 
hundreds of millions of dollars of liability. Um, so I, I, that's the that's the concern I have is that um, uh, essentially that some some components of the community are being exploited. So what I'm hearing is everyone has to unionize. Uh, you would be amazed how many 4 a.m. conversations <laughs> I've had with hackers uh, over cocktails where we've talked about forming a hacker union. So, uh, uh, so uh, unfortunately, I'm not a social media person, but for those out there listening who do know me, um, I would uh, I would love to uh, talk to them about that if they're interested. Uh, just kidding. Do you see anything happening in cybersecurity, especially you know that has popped up in the SF area that excites you? That makes you um, have a little bit more. I don't hope. know if I would say specifically in the SF area. I mean, selfishly, I would say I think the the power of these events, they're just growing and scaling more platforms doing them more often more around the world. I mean, one of the things I would say that uh, is very uh, that was very discouraging in our time was getting visas for researchers uh, from other parts of the world, whether they were from the Middle East or India or Pakistan. Um, you know, we would constantly, you know, we would write, do everything in our power to help, help these researchers, these hackers, uh, in terms of getting them those visas. We would write letters of support, get them invitations, everything that we could do. And they would just, you know, the state of the world right now, especially in the United States and the State Department, it, it's, it's really difficult. They would constantly get denied. And, you know, these were people who were just trying to attend a conference and, and enjoy a great event. Um, so that was, you know, something that, that was really, uh, really discouraging, uh, that we would encounter. But the solution has been now that these events are being done more around the globe. So those hackers who can't come to the United States can get a visa to go to Europe, can get a, you know, I mean, Hacker One is doing their event next week with Dropbox, um, uh, in Singapore. Uh, and, um, you know, that to me is an opportunity for all those researchers who, who can't go. Uh, not just for the geographic limitations, right? You know, traveling across the world is a pain in the butt. Uh, but to be able to get somewhere in less than five hours, uh, you know, and, and from that, you know, be, by having these events be more global, that means there's more opportunity, more exposure, more, more places, you know, I mean, just last year, Hacker One, uh, it was an event that I had planned, but that I, I ended up not do, uh, uh, kind of running. Um, but they did their first uh, South American event in Buenos Aires. I mean, that's just their first exposure in South America, uh, which is super important, right? There's a ton, a ton of hackers and, and pen testers in South America um, who who need to know more about this stuff uh, and get engaged with it. So uh, I think the global impact has has been the thing that I've been happiest about. Um, to be to kind of be blunt and New Yorkish, I could care less about San Francisco uh, when it, in terms of exposure to cybersecurity. There's almost too much cybersecurity here. Um, uh, I, I, I'm more interested in, in the global impact that can be made. And I'm also seeing, you know, more impact on those high school students and, and those young kids who are getting an opportunity to do these things. Um, for anyone listening, who's looking to build a community, um, uh, whether it's in cybersecurity or whatever field it is, um, whether it's like, you know, for an organization, whether it's work culture, whether it's like a club, um, what is your advice to them? Um, my advice is to listen uh and that sounds simplistic but it's important the reason why our events did so well over time and grew is because we took the feedback we got uh to heart and we took it really really seriously and we got a lot of really positive feedback and it was great it was nice i i i was really appreciative and humbled by the fact that people loved the events but i spent my time focusing on the things that we failed at uh, and that and that required listening and reading and iterating and, and building uh, and if you're building a community you have to i mean the, the heartbeat of your community is people. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're on the other side of a screen or they're right in front of you in person. You have to listen to what they say. That doesn't mean you act on everything that they'd say or all the suggestions that they make. But 
people naturally want to be heard. And that's, that's enough for them. Even if you don't act on what they say, they want that acknowledgement that, Hey, you took my feedback. You gave me reasons on things that you'd like and things that you don't, but you can't run a community as a dictator. You have to run a community, a community as someone who allows people to participate and to contribute back. Um, there's a, a, per, a person who I'm very friendly with who I would highly recommend people follow on social media and, and read his blog. His name is Jono Bacon, uh, bacon like, like the food. Uh, and I've worked with Jono very closely um, and read a lot of his work and really, uh, you know, prescribed to a lot of it. And I think Jono follows that same thing is you have to listen to what your community is telling you. Um, and, and with that being said, one of the things that people might hear from their community, which I think is a major mistake that people do sometimes, is they try and do too much. You got to start out simple. Like, what are the core things you want to do? And let's say it's a cybersecurity community. Like, what is the main thing you want to start with? Maybe it's education. Okay, what's our format? You know, and then just going through all the things. What's our format going to be? What are the things that we're trying to get out of this? I, I sometimes see communities that try and do way too much, way too early, and therefore they become essentially so-so at everything and not excellent at anything. Um, and and because of that, you know, they they keep going down that path, and they might even be getting that feedback from their people saying, "Hey, like." This is working okay, but we're trying to do too much. And then we've got this other thing here. And people are so focused on like, oh, no, but we've got to be this all in one community that solves all the problems in cyber community. Like to start out, keep it simple. Take in your feedback, iterate and build and grow and grow and grow. Uh, and, and focus on the things that work and build on them and the things that don't work, get rid of them. Um, so it, it's important um, that that people, you know, kind of take a a slow and steady approach and, and constantly listen to what people are telling them about what they like, but more importantly, what they don't like and what's not working because you got to toss that stuff out and then you got to focus on the things that are working uh, and then, and then continue to build. What kills a community? What, when you grow something so large and you're nurturing it, what are things people do that you've seen that just start like, you know, losing members? Um, I think, you know, I think every community is different, but I think the things that make it special initially, they die, right? Uh, and that can be, and there's a whole host of factors. It could be the people that run it, right? I mean, again, I, I think the most important thing uh, for a business, for a community is, are the people, they're the heart and soul of it. Uh, so when you lose people, can you replace them? And I mean, people who run it and keep it organized. Um, the people who, you know, right, communities, because they are naturally run by not just the organizers, but, the, you know, the evangelists, the, the people who are going to constantly support that community, they have to stay engaged. Uh, they have to feel that love that the community uh, once had for them. Um, and I think in the end, it's all about maintaining the value that people get from that community from day one. Um, and that's why I say keeping it simple, because if you can maintain that kind of, uh, I hate the term ethos, but if you can kind of, <laughs> if you can maintain that kind of, um, those those building blocks, those foundations of why this community succeeded in the first place, um, then I think it then it can really stand out. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like uh, when I was managing spaces for WeWork, like what I tried to do was try and provide build a, a small community there. And again, it was only around two in my in my early days. It was only like two hundred fifty three people, but it was a community built on you know, everything from the social side to the educational side and anything in between. And people felt that it was more than just a space, right? It was a space that was nurturing their startup, that was giving them guidance, and that that everyone was supporting one another. And 
as a community, like we were grows and grows and grows. Uh, sometimes what happens is it becomes a little too social and not educational enough. And if it becomes too educational and not social enough, it becomes a little stale. So you kind of have to remember what are the things that made this place special and, and not kind of move away from them. Um, and, and kind of stick to it. And, and if, and if you're getting too big and those foundations are kind of leaving you and, and, and not becoming the heartbeat of, of what you've built, maybe you got to take a step back and slow down and, and kind of, like I said, like, Hey, listen to what people are telling you. Maybe it's not the same as it once was. And it doesn't mean communities don't evolve over time. Of course they do. They need to, they need to grow. They need to bring in new components. But if the things that don't make it special aren't there anymore, I think that it's a hard time that the value that people are looking for is um, is going to be maintained. Nice. Well, Ted Kramer, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. I, I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate you having me, Sean. I'm, I'm really happy to uh, be one of your first uh, 10 guests uh, on, the, on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. And it was awesome to have you. Um, do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdom, shout outs, any last words for the listeners? Uh, no shameless plugs at the moment, but hopefully I get reinvited back to a future podcast. Once I get my business off the ground, I would love to, uh, again, it will be a community oriented, um, business. So maybe we'll do part two and I can uh, talk a little bit more in detail in terms of the business I'm uh, developing. Uh, in terms of shout outs, uh, I'll give a shout out to uh, every single hacker who uh, I've uh, met at a live event or talked to, uh, whether it's on forums like Bug Bounty Forum. Um, it's It was so special to have to get work with them, get to work with them over the last uh, four years. Um, honestly, all the success that I've had is is actually due to them. Uh, they may, as I always said, they made me look good. Um, so, uh, to each of them, to the ones, uh, who I'm still in touch with, you know who you are. And to the ones who, uh, may have forgotten me, I'm still out here. So, uh, drop me a note. Uh, I'd love to say hi. And, uh, I, I just wish them all the, the best of success. I hope they get to live their dreams, which to me seems like spending time with one another, traveling the world and, and making great money, finding, uh, some bugs, which appears to be what they're super passionate about. So, um, again, thanks to you for hosting, uh, hosting and having me here. And, and I wish you all the best of luck, Sean. I mean, again, I find it, um, I'm really tickled that, uh, A, you were able to attend two of our events, uh, and that you were kind of brought in uh, to these events through the mechanism that to me is my favorite mechanism all through friendship, right? You had a great friend, uh, in Joel. Uh, who said, you need to come to this thing. And because of that friendship, now you and I have developed a friendship uh, and and there's nothing better than that. Uh, so I, I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck and uh, I want nothing but the best for uh, your future and, and your up and coming uh, shows. Thanks. I appreciate that. Hey there. Thanks for listening. Ted has left the security world to work on community building at scale. What he's working on can't be released yet, but he's promised to return in the future to talk more about it. And as I said last episode, there's some new and exciting changes, so make sure to stay updated with our Twitter. We'll also drop a short episode soon to tell you what's going on. This episode was recorded and mixed by me. Special thanks to Ted for an awesome conversation. We wish him the best with his upcoming company. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM. I'd love to hear from you and use your feedback to improve the show. And don't forget to tune in next week on wherever you listen to podcasts.